Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You're listening to Scaffold, a podcast featuring interviews with architects, artists, and designers. I'm your host, Matthew Blunderfield. In this episode, I speak with Barbara Penner, professor in the Architectural Humanities at the Bartlett School of Architecture. Barbara is a scholar who has focused extensively on bathrooms, addressing this space as an intersection of subjects ranging from hygiene and infrastructure to gender and sexuality. She has also written a historical study tracing the origins and growth of the American honeymoon, and has more recently been involved in the Disordinary Architecture Project, a network of artists and educators exploring interrelationships between disabled and diverse bodies in built space. I met with Barbara in July of 2018 at her home in Hackney, where we talked about, among other things, the path she followed from English literature into architectural history, her role as an academic in relation to practice, and how the voice she writes in is affected by her position as a feminist scholar. And now, here's the interview. I hope you enjoy it. Because I know you studied English Lit at McGill in yes. the mid-90s. Um, and now you're an architectural theorist and historian. And um, I'm just curious about how that gap is bridged. And I wonder if we could kind of go through uh, mm. a chronology of how you got from English to architecture. <laughs> <laughs> That's the kind Do of... Do you want the long version or the short version? Let's try the long version. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, well, in, over the course of my undergrad, I discovered art history. And art history was a complete revelation to me. I knew very little about art or architecture. I'd grown up in the Canadian suburbs. That was just something not on the radar at all. But I felt with art history, I, I did feel uncomfortable. I wouldn't have been able to articulate it this way, but I did feel that it was very elitist. Mm -hmm. And so I suppose I was searching without quite knowing that I was searching and without quite knowing what I was searching for. And just by chance, the Canadian Centre for Architecture in Montreal opened up. Um, I'm not sure if it opened up the year before or two years before, but what they began to do was send their curators to McGill to teach courses. 
And so suddenly there was no architectural history in the art history department. Mm. And then suddenly there was lots. Um, and so I had a really wonderful teacher, Michael J. Lewis. Um, and he really was a, a revelation. But what he really stressed and what I think I began to understand was that the built environment affects everyone. Whereas art history, art, uh, it's lovely, but it affects probably five to 10% of the population. And it just, I, I suddenly found what I was looking for, which was this, um, the fabric of society, a way into discussing larger social, cultural, and political issues in a way that I felt would be relevant to a wide number of people. I also, very strangely, and I'm not quite sure how this all comes together, but I worked for um, a very elderly psychoanalyst, Dr. Clifford Scott. Yeah, I saw that. Yeah, who actually brought psychoanalytic training to Canada. Um, I was reading his obituary last night. Oh, really? Because he you, studied under Melanie Klein. He, he is did. One of, uh, her first... Anna Luzanne's. Yes, yeah. exactly. He, yeah, he had... Because he became interested in psychiatry and psychoanalysis, so he first went to John Hopkins. Then he came to England to study with Melanie Klein or train with her. Um... And when he left England, he was actually the president of the British Psychoanalytic Society. He was this um, figure who was mediating between Melanie Klein and Anna Freud mm. because they were quite polarized at that time. And he was one of the, the, the neutrals. But he was offer, offered this opportunity to go back to McGill and set up a psychoanalytic training unit um, which he took up but then of course McGill's psychiatry department not long after became immired in scandal mm. um, with the CIA experiments and so on so it wasn't the happiest story but he you know was a very influential figure in the Canadian psychoanalytic scene um, he was still seeing clients and patients, um, even though he was in his early 90s at this point. And so I would work between his house, the CCA, audit classes at McGill. It was a very nice life, mm. actually. And it, it strangely all made sense. Um, somehow I was helping Clifford Scott with his memoirs. So... It, it somehow this interest in the the cultural and the psychological it it did begin to coalesce mm -hmm. in that strange way things some random pieces occasionally do. Uh, 
It, I mean, it's funny because I first learned about Melanie Klein in an English lit class as well. Mm. And I feel like psychoanalysis, um, well, maybe it's fading from mainstream therapeutic communities, is still a very rich way of um, mm. a mode of interpretation. Um, and I think it's so, it's so exciting that um, you're learning about architecture, you're helping a psychoanalyst edit his memoir, <clears throat> and you're studying English lit all simultaneously. Yes. Um, and like you said, there's a kind of, maybe there's like a logic of association there. There's like, yeah. there's some, just by nature, the fact all these things are happening in parallel means that they somehow relate. But it doesn't seem like you could have at the time known exactly what that relationship was? No. Um, and in fact, I, I would say possibly there was unconscious links being made there. I'm sure that's true. But I can honestly say that I was just reacting. Um, it, it, there was no... Um, I didn't feel, I suppose most 20 year olds don't or 25 year olds don't. I didn't feel in control of these things, um, but I was open to it. And somehow, even at the time, I did understand that it was all adding up to, to more than the sum of its parts. Mm. Um, what kind of impact did working with Scott have on you in terms of your academic or intellectual outlook? Mm, I think probably in terms of psychoanalysis, very little. Um, but personally, I think he influenced me a lot because, you know, I was sitting in his office and he would be in his consulting room which was set up exactly um, like Freud's study. He had this incredible couch with a Turkish carpet laid over it. And there was this uh, hush, you know, this ceremonial hush when his patients would come in and be ushered into the room and the door would close. And um, it was highly ritualistic actually. Um, but it, it was more to do with his uh, manner of engaging with the world. Uh, he would never offer a statement. He would always ask a question. His, and he was extraordinarily interested and curious about people. Um, he had one of these amazing ears so he could detect where you had been born and he was incredibly good at drawing people out mm. and there was something about the way he engaged that was very uh, clearly it came from decades of psychoanalytic work and training and that really impressed me quite a lot about how you need to interrogate something or someone with this genuine openness um, 
and if people can't articulate things, which they often can't, because through him I also became very aware of the shortcomings of language, um, you need to figure out ways to lead people to an understanding of their uh, motives or ideas. You have to help them articulate that. This sounds like a kind of methodology that yeah. could be applied to research as well. And I think maybe so. in fact is in the research you do, I don't know. But before we get there, um, I guess we could just keep following this timeline. So after working for Scott, um, at some point you moved to the UK and did your master's degree in uh, architectural history. Mm -hmm. This was, of course, before email was used regularly or the internet, and you would try desperately to get information about programs or people, and it was honestly like staring into a black void. Um, so I, I sent off a letter to the Bartlett asking for a prospectus to be sent to me. Um, and when it arrived, it was just a brief few paragraphs about the MA program, but again, it immediately clicked because there was this emphasis on uh, social use, on everyday architecture and urbanism. Um, and the director of the course, the co-founder of that course was um, Adrian Forty. So I went and read his book, Objects of Desire, which for me remains a really seminal text. I find myself referencing it constantly, even now. Um, but everything just clicked at that moment. I haven't read that book, so I wonder if, if there's a way of just... <laughs> Briefly yeah. describing it? Well, it, it's essentially a design history. It's often considered a seminal, a foundational work of design history um, because it was one of the first to... Um, even though it is quite focused on production, in fact, it was one of the first books that sought to really understand what it is that design does. Um, and so rather than treating stylistic change as some sort of inevitable process, it was actually trying to understand the role, what we might call the value added part of design. And um, the, the hint really is in the title, Objects of Desire. Adrian was interested in understanding how design is used to stimulate consumer demand. But more than that, how it embodies certain social ideals. Um, and so, for instance, a chapter that's really influenced me personally and, and many other historians 
is a chapter that Adrian wrote on hygiene, mm. looking at the work of Mary Douglas and her famous formulation that dirt is matter out of place. And he looks at how design um, comes in uh, as a way of helping us to order our social environment. And it, it, it's not about practically, in many cases, keeping things clean. It's about symbolizing one's commitment to the ideals of hygiene and cleanliness. So the example that he gives, one of many, is of Raymond Lowy's um, efforts to redesign the refrigerator. So from this clunky, dark little box to this white, gleaming um, object mm. that would be a show showpiece of one's kitchen, for instance. So in a way, Many of those ideas have been so thoroughly metabolized, it's hard to see how unique it was. Mm -hmm. But it, it was, it also looked at a, such an incredibly wide array of designed objects um, from the tube map and the redesign of the tube map to office chairs to refrigerators mm -hmm. to you name it um, and so it was kind of because it was very structuralist um, Adrian was influenced heavily by Roland Barthes um, and the book mythologies in writing this so it was about trying to understand a system mm. um, within the the limits of industrial capitalism but I think most design histories had perhaps been less ambitious up to that point except for Gideon's mechanization takes command but mm -hmm. it was this big important book um, that's had a lasting effect so you were gravitating towards the Bartlett because people like 40 were there um, it's interesting to me that like it's an architecture school um, that has a focus on a broader um, material culture that I think in mm. other schools maybe finds its home in other disciplines somehow. Like mm. the study yeah. of material culture could belong as much in anthropology as it does in architecture. And so for you, staying within this world of architecture being a part of a school like the Bartlett, um, does that speak to something else that you're drawn to that maybe has to do with design mm -hmm. um, or participating in design in, in a way that an architecture school would allow you to and maybe an anthropology program wouldn't? wouldn't. The Bartlett, the Bartlett School of Architecture is a universe you know, it's a very dynamic, quite consuming place to be. But of course, we're within UCL. So um, and UCL is a, a big uh, all-purpose university 
Um, so we've always benefited from that. And for instance, I'm so aware of the absence of that when I go down the road, as we call it, to the architectural association, mm. which is pure, um, but I think doesn't benefit from these wider connections that you can make mm -hmm. as part of a, a full university environment. Um, I mean, that said, that's not, I think for a long time, the Bartlett's been run as a fiefdom. And... What do you mean by that? Uh, I think it's, it's becoming more open. But I think there's something about architecture generally I don't know how you feel, but that really discourages um, interaction with other disciplines, um, with um, non-architects, actually. And I think there are many, many complex reasons for that. Uh, Rainer Banham, the architectural critic used to talk about the black box of architecture and I think architecture is incredibly good at defending itself as a discipline but that means that it can feel quite defensive at mm -hmm. times like resistant to outside influences because everything is felt to thus erode the power and autonomy mm -hmm. of the architect. Exactly. I totally agree. I feel like it is a defensive discipline, but only because it needs to be, because it is so fragile. Yeah. <laughs> yes. No, you're right. Because, I mean, similarly to the, the ways in which the kind of democratic nature of um, urban design and architecture is what drew you to it, I think, in part, and away from our history, is also what um, makes the boundaries of architecture so porous, mm -hmm. and the expertise and authority of the architect so um, tenuous. questionable, questionable yeah. or tenuous, yeah. yeah. Um, and so I get that feeling too, that there is a, there's a defensiveness there that's about the survival of the title or the the sense of authority that comes with it. Yeah, um, it, I think you're right. And every generation, there is a crisis facing architects that they need to somehow engage with or overcome. Um, so, of course, phenomenology, which we were talking about earlier, that was a way to keep things real in this age of dematerialization um, and the proliferation of the image you know it was a way of retaining authority for architecture through material presence mm -hmm. so that's a really good um, example I think also of how architectural history and theory feed into this these larger debates as well but yeah, I, I think you're right. But I think, um, and I also appreciate that you're more 
slightly more generous as a practicing architect sometimes i get frustrated because for me i would never pretend to be able to supplant an architect and i have huge respect for the knowledge and the skill set that architects have um i couldn't do what i do if i didn't but the number of times I've been questioned about my right to speak about architecture because I don't actually do it mm. um, is quite incredible, perhaps less now than, than it was. But, and I find that so frustrating because mm. I feel like, well, you, you don't design for other architects you design for users so don't you want intelligent commentary on you know the impact that your buildings then have mm -hmm. does that not constitute an important perspective that you should be open to so this is my own little private battle i think i think it's probably shared by a lot of people i mean i remember so I studied English in my undergrad, and then I went to study architecture as a master's yes. degree. And that shift from uh, the kind of liberal arts critical theory, let's sit down and talk about my essay environment, to architecture school, which to me felt really polarized between theory profs and practitioners who run studios. Yeah. Um, with the students kind of like torn between <laughs> and you'd be sitting in class and you could feel there's like a judgment against an academic who doesn't practice or isn't an architect but then also I felt like there was some kind of unfair advantage that professors would have over students who didn't come from a theory background because mm -hmm. there's always this imbalance of like not having the context to necessarily be able to engage with the ideas that are being put forward and so I felt like somehow as an architecture student we were always in between these two things and always at a loss in some way because mm. of because of that tension maybe we can actually now just talk about your research a bit okay sure I mean though what I just very quickly I think uh -huh. what I wanted to say in relation to a point that you raised about the fact that you felt, as a student, you felt quite torn yeah. between practice and theory. Um, that feels very familiar to me. Uh -huh. um, and, well, we could talk more about that um, another time. But what I was going to say is that I think the one thing, perhaps, that's changing mm this is probably less relevant in North American context, but is very, very relevant here, is the whole idea of research and the expectation that even practitioners, even the most, you know, hardcore practitioners, we are all meant to be uh, producing research. Um, whether you're practitioner, history and theory, whatever. And it's, um, 
the historical reasons for that shift are um, quite complex. Again, it was it came out of something called the Oxford Conference in 1958, um, and research is meant to give architecture more of a, an academic standing as well as a professional standing. So, you know, it's, it's very interesting and, and something like the research excellence framework, which is this national research audit that happens every seven years, things like that have been really significant drivers in terms of uh, changing the ways in which perhaps not people, uh, perhaps not the way that architects practice, but certainly the way they then document and disseminate and speak about their work. So there, there has this thing called research maybe occupies the terrain between practice and, and theory. Mm. Um, and it, it is changing relationships um, in some ways. help me understand your research um, methodologies a little better but also like I guess first trying to understand how you settle on a topic of study <laughs> <laughs> because um, I'm aware of two particular uh, interests of yours one is about the honeymoon mm -hmm. and uh, you wrote this book newlyweds on tour understanding the tradition of the honeymoon in North America. The other is about bathrooms. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, very generally speaking, I think everything to do with bathrooms is a fair yeah. kind of description. And <laughs> when I was telling friends that I was going to be speaking with you and that these were your research interests and that you taught at a school of architecture, the architect friends didn't bat an eye. <laughs> Somehow that made perfect sense, or that it was totally acceptable that uh, an architectural uh, theorist would be looking at these subjects uh, under the umbrella of uh, architecture theory. And just going back, I guess, like how how does one become um, interested in these subjects? <laughs> it's such a, a good question, and I often think about that myself. Um, one thing I should probably say was that um, my PhD was in the humanities, not in architectural history. So it, I think the normal pattern is for people to specialize 
in their PhD, whereas I went slightly the other way. I took this specialized master's degree and then I opened things out again. Um, and so for me, what was really appealing about the honeymoon as a, a spatial practice, why it was exciting to me was that it knit together so many things. So it, it was a way of um, choreographing a large number of uh, spaces and places that were dispersed over a fairly wide geographical area. But obviously choreographing, choreographing them in a way that made a certain narrative sense. And so that was what really interested me. And there is um, some, let's say, proper architectural history about midway through where I look at this very bizarre phenomenon of um, honeymoon suites, which first appeared in North America in the late 1840s. Um, and that fascinated me because, of course, Americans were meant to be puritanical about sex, and yet they had these dedicated suites for you know, newlywed couples. And, uh, you know, it, it, it sort of confirmed what Foucault always said, which was, um, you know, the Victorians were not repressed about sex. Sex was everywhere. Mm -hmm. um, it was this open secret. Um, so that really interested me, but it was always, and that I think anchors the book that um, archival research into uh, mid-19th century uh, hotels, commercial hotels, and also steamships. So there is a bit of architectural history there, but it was always this interest in the larger um, ritual bodies moving through space and what that meant and how somehow the newlyweds and the narrative about conjugality held these various spaces all together and linked them in this coherent story mm. about what it meant to uh, be American, what it meant to be uh, married, what it meant to, you know, um, be a part of um, this larger entity. Um, and it was, it, it was something that newlyweds, in taking this trip, they somehow legitimated their own status. Mm. Um, but they also said something about what it was felt, what, how one felt um, to be American, because it was this highly choreographed ritual. Mm. Anyway, so that was the interest. It was, there was some architecture in there, but it was much more about the spatial practice. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and in terms of bathrooms, I always thought, how did I, I, I've often thought, how did I get there? How it is it that I've ended up spending 25 years on and off talking about bathrooms? I don't know what to tell you. I mean, it's, it, it's certainly not what somebody uh, consciously sets out to do mm-hmm. to become a, um, a bathroom expert. Partially, I felt like, um, you know, no, I'm often asked to talk about bathrooms and there isn't actually that many people other people out there talking about this subject, that that is changing. Um, but then I, I stopped fighting it and just went <laughs> with it because they're just such a great way of talking about um, social and cultural and political issues. Um, because on the second you start talking about bathrooms, you find yourself talking about other things as well. Um, attitudes towards the body, um, attitudes towards privacy, hygiene, um, religion in many cases, sexuality, gender, it's so, you find it's impossible to talk about bathrooms without also talking about all of these other things at the same time. So I think for that reason, I keep coming back to them because they're such fertile um, terrain to explore precisely the issues that really interest me. Um, and, And this is something because I'm often approached by people, for instance, the people who write the British Standards um, invited me to join their panel, Hmm. which is very nice. I wasn't able to do it, but at a certain point, I want to say, actually, I don't really care that much about (laughs) bathrooms. I do in the sense that, of course, I really believe they're essential, especially public Hmm. toilets to creating a civilized, dignified public realm. I do really believe that. Um, but yeah, I'm, I, I'm not that, you know, there are people who are much, there are bathroom activists who are much more engaged in those kinds of issues. But mm-hmm. for me, it's really about what does it allow you to talk about and I guess the, the thing that I would say, the connection perhaps between uh, newlyweds on tour and bathroom is just that I'm taking these spaces um, that, although they're regarded very differently, honeymoon suites are, of course, regarded as very special spaces. Bathrooms are regarded as the opposite. Nonetheless, I would say both are incredibly charged with meaning in different ways. Um, And there's something there that needs really careful unpicking before you can understand what's uh, what's really happening. Mm -hmm. 
Um, I wonder if we could talk a bit about how you research for projects like this. Yeah. <laughs> um, because, I mean, it looks like you've been studying, well, you said bathrooms on and off for 25 years. Um, and even in the way that, um, even in the credits for your, your bathroom book, the kind of people you think and the experiences that you allude to, it seems <laughs> like, um, well, you're down in the sewers of Paris. <laughs> you're visiting um, um, factories where um, ceramics are produced. You are, I don't know, you're kind of, you're in it. You're kind of inserting yourself yeah. into a situation as a researcher. Um, in a way that maybe um, wouldn't be expected. And so, like, how much of your research is about participation? Mm. Oh, just sorry, one more other thing. It's for yeah. the Newlyweds book. You reenacted the Grand Tour. Yes. Did you not? With my With mother. your mother, yeah. I do that, I guess, because um, I find it just makes things more vivid and interesting. Um, I aspire to, but have never achieved. Uh, Adrian Fordy, my um, tutor at, uh, in the master's program, he never lectured about a building unless he'd visited it personally. Mm. Um, that was very much an ethos that was around at the Bartlett, this aspiration to know things through having seen them or experienced them yourself. And that can be hard as a historian, but I try through these uh, visits and so on to try to get a feel for things inside out. I would love it if it came into my writing more. Mm -hmm. um, I really like some of the creative nonfiction uh, writers who are out there now who write about spaces. Mm -hmm. um, there is a wonderful book on Niagara by somebody called Ginger Strand. Yeah, so you wrote about in places. Yeah, I really admire that book and that whole genre. I think when done well of mm -hmm. writing about places. I guess there's a real tradition of that in the UK. People like Robert McFarlane mm. or um, who I'm less fond of, but um, Ian Thompson is um, another one of these writers. And I'd love to do that myself, but I haven't quite worked that one out. Mm. I guess the places writing is a way to shift voices slightly. I do find, because I work in academe, and I have certain requirements to fulfill as part of that, um, I don't necessarily feel as free with my writing mm. as I would like to be. That's interesting, because I feel like the kind of writing you're alluding to seems like it would be more home in journalism. Where you're, there's it's creative nonfiction accounts of experiences that mm. are informative and um, and still critical. Do you feel like um, you know, being an established academic now, you need to ask or you need to gain permission to 
embark on or unorthodox research projects or um, to use um, an unorthodox critical voice? I mean, what, what I would say, there's so many ways to answer that, but as ever, it's a bit um, yes and a bit no. Um, so I suppose yes in the sense that as you advance in your career, you are invited to do more and more things, which is nice. You um, stop pushing as much and you get pulled a bit more. Um, and people are interested in you or find you precisely because they respond to something in your voice. or So they're more willing, I think, to, to go with... Um, your preferences somehow that's what they value about you so that's quite nice but know in the sense that you as an academic you still are part of communities so i would say those are like uh, your allegiances and mine is to feminism and always has been and what's happened within feminist scholarship is that as feminism the, or the feminist perspective has become perhaps less controversial, it's gone underground slightly. Um, and so, uh, you know, it's a very live topic, but um, at one event that I was at quite recently called Becoming We, um, the question was raised, well, are, are we now being too subtle and too um, implicit about our feminism? Has the time come, you know, a new generation is coming up, do we need to uh, once again very explicitly nail our colors to the, to the mast? Um, and be very explicit about our feminism, how that shaped our scholarship, our approach to the subject, our methods, and so on. Um, and that's quite interesting because it implies that to adopt a certain political position, there's a kind of ethical responsibility to write in a particular way. Mm. And that just really... Um, that's a kind of live debate, live subject, um, is that self-reflexivity inherent to being a feminist, which implies that, you know, there, there's a certain rigidity there towards how you should be as a scholar. Mm -hmm. So that moment really interested me, mm -hmm. this sense of, well, you're not just an individual scholar. You're actually carrying the, the um, I don't want to say carrying the can. That sounds really awful. Um, yeah, you've got, and that comes with a certain um, ethical uh, set of choices that you make about your voice. Mm-hmm. Um. So what, what kinds of responsibilities do you feel like you have to your 
students now then? Well, I've been really heartened by how active our student body is in um, and how committed they are to politics um, in, in many, many different ways. Um, so we have so many students now who are thinking about uh, pedagogy, for instance, in a critical way. I'm talking mostly about PhD students, but also master's level students as well, and sometimes undergrads. Probably our most dynamic student this past year was a year three student, Joanna McLean, who wrote a really wonderful dissertation about women in architecture, kind of old school feminist uh, tome called The Leaky Pipeline. Um, but you know, we've got students looking at precarity in the architecture profession, um, and they're becoming quite active in setting up uh, a union for architects and at, at all levels of practice, like from very early stages to, to late stages. Um, students who are very interested in what's horribly called EDI, Equality, Diversity and Inclusion mm. initiatives. Mm. Um, and I mean, my current interest, of course, is disability and architecture. And I've been um, doing, I've done three events in the last year to try to convince architects, uh, along with my uh, team, the Disordinary Architecture Project team. Um, you know, the aim is to convince architects that disability can be approached in a creative way rather than in a compliance-led way. And, you know, we're feeling our way into that because disability is not on anybody's radar um, at, at the moment in the Bartlett, though that is changing. So, you know, there's this tremendous groundswell of energy and interest in things that, to my mind, really matter. Mm. Um, it feels we're at a moment of uh, somehow more critical engagement. Mm -hmm. It seems like there's a growing sense of urgency now for one to wear one's politics on one's sleeve. Mm. And like you were saying, to kind of announce your position and stand for it and galvanize momentum around it. Um, and I guess just to end, like, where, where do you see your practice going? Because I feel like that word practice mm. probably better aligns with this idea of, of, um, of like a, a kind of groundswell of a movement of getting other people to participate in a project. And it yes. seems like you mentioned at the beginning, um, before we started recording, Sarah Bell, um, who writes about, I just have her book here, Constructing Infrastructure for Cities and Nature. Um, 
and that you mentioned some urbanists or urban mm. planners you're working with as well. Are there projects in the making um, that you're involved with that you could talk about? I think, um, I wish there were, I'm sure there will be. I think what is ongoing actually is, well, I'll, maybe I'll just quickly describe two projects, but they're not, they don't engage with urban issues per mm -hmm. se. Uh, well, no, actually one does. Uh, engage with urban issues. So th the next big project that I'm involved with, um, and I, I separate this from my writing, this is more like uh, what I do mm -hmm. as a scholar somehow, um, is called Architecture Beyond Sight. And it is a S-I-G-H-T. It's a three-day residential course that brings together sighted and partially sighted um, architects mm -hmm. to co-design a new curriculum for um, introducing disability issues into architecture. So it's, it's meant to, we're all meant to come together and co-design this short course. Um, so that's not um, urban per se, except that it inevitably uh, invokes a, quite a bit to do with uh, urban wayfinding, uh, accessibility, mobility in the city, and I think it's quite innovative in terms of its methods and its outcomes as well this idea that you know you, you bring together a group of people with radically different perspectives um, and you have them develop something together um, that can then be used uh, for architectural education there's something about that that's really exciting and it is again it, it's about um, you know, giving architects tools with which to approach design problems that can in include the urban. Um, and then the second project is something called the Stalled Project. And it, it's actually uh, Stalled is a design project run by Joel Sanders, who is a professor at Yale University. And he has been collaborating with one of the leading trans scholars in the United States, Susan Stryker. Um, and together they are working on uh, redesigning bathrooms so that they are gender neutral and trans friendly. But what I think is great about their project and really inspiring were we're bringing them over to the UK um, and we're setting up an event. We're designing an event around them to introduce them to relevant scholars here in the UK. Mm. But what I think they do that's fascinating and it's um, 
kind of kicking around in my brain is they also operate as a design consultancy. So mm. they're not just coming up with designs and putting them out in the public realm, um, although that's the element of what they do, but they're actually going to schools, universities, and advising, okay, this is how you might consider retrofitting your existing bathrooms so that they are more gender neutral. And I think that's an amazing model of uh, practice. Mm -hmm. So you, you come up with an idea, but you then set yourself up as a consultant. So you put your knowledge and skills at the service of um, other parties. And there's something about that that I think is quite exciting and appealing. So that at some point, maybe you, you could imagine yourself becoming a kind of consultant. <laughs> maybe. Um, I think, I mean, I have done work that's more like that in the past. I would say that the key to those kinds of projects is collaboration. Um, find, it's, it's hard as an individual researcher, again, um, to just go out there and act. It's much easier when you're part of a team with a diverse set of skills that you can uh, draw upon and use as appropriate. So I suppose it, it it's a model of team-based outreach. Perhaps that's how it's best described. And that really appeals to me mm. in many ways. But as I say, it's kind of kicking around. I haven't quite worked out what the, what it will be or what form it will take. I do want to move away from bathrooms yeah. at some point <laughs> in my life. I don't want to spend another 25 years. I mean, they're fascinating and they keep drawing you back. But, um, mm -hmm. um, and of course the trends, because of um, all of the attention that's being given to transgender rights in the United States, mm -hmm. Bathrooms are very much again uh, up on the agenda and uh, being discussed and talked about and debated. Um, but yeah, let let's let's see. Watch this space. I don't quite know what the next step is going to be, but it'll be interesting. Whatever it is, I suspect it will more be to do with uh, disability and the built environment. Um, and probably, rather than reinventing the wheel, it, it's more about embedding myself in some of the existing uh, groups that are out there and who do amazing, amazing work and who do consultancy work already. Mm. Barbara, thanks so much for your time. <laughs> wow. <laughs> You've been listening to Scaffold. I'm Matthew Blunderfield and I produce the show. 
The theme music is composed and performed by Andrew Wayworth of the band Stanley Park, with additional music this week by Broken Social Scene. Subscribe to Scaffold on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, and follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at scaffold underscore podcast. Thank you to Barbara Penner. Special thanks this week to Scandal Inn. And thanks to you for listening. I'll see you again in two weeks. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.